This morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. I woke up, I, got, I came down to the kitchen this morning, and I'm looking out the window, and I'm like, there's snow on my wife's car windshield. I was totally bummed out. I'm like, so excited to like ride my motorcycle. You guys have no idea. Like, if you've ever seen the movie Dumb and Dumber, like, I feel like doing that right now. Just like getting out there in the wind with the breeze that just frosts me all up. I don't even care. But anyway, beautiful spring day. So let's get into it. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. So if you're anything like me, um, when you have a favorite TV show or whatever that is, you need that previously on episode. Because as much as I think I followed last week's episode of my favorite TV program, and I think I know all the details, when that previously on episode comes on, I'm like, man, I forgot all about that. And so today, our previously on episode for what we're zooming in on this morning is going to be Acts chapter 17, um, verses 1 through 7. And you can either turn there or just follow along with me as I read that quick. So this is kind of going to give you a little bit of background on what's happening here and why our story this morning is so significant. So Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. And Jason was Paul's host where he was staying seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus. So Paul spent some weeks there preaching to the pagan Gentiles, With great success. So he had some fruit. He had some converts that came as a result of that. But then rioters uh, instigated by the Jewish opponents dragged Jason, Paul's host, as I said, and some other Christians before the governors and charged them with inciting a riot against Caesar. Now, Paul had planted a church there just recently, and Paul was concerned for the new Christians he had to leave as a result of the charges that were against him. So a few months later, he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. So Paul's critics use the fact that Paul had to flee the city as an opportunity to throw dirt on his good name. Paul's accusers' accusations are not explicitly seen in the text this morning, meaning that if you turn there, you're not going to see the back and forth conversation between the accusers and Paul. But based on Paul's defense of the accusations, we can kind of build what was going on and what they were probably saying about Paul as a result of that. So first they accused him of basically being a coward, saying, look, he ran away. 
We ain't seen or heard from him since. This dude, Paul, must be soft, right? That's the type of talk we do. Next, they accuse Paul of being insincere and having sinful motives. Oh, he's just another one of those phony TV preachers that's trying to get your money, right? I bet he's only in it for what he can get anyway. You know, the usual, sex, money, power, fame. And you want to know how I know? Because when he got in a little bit of trouble, he ran away and left y'all. You stupid Thessalonians, you think Paul cares about you? He left you in the midst of your troubles. Those are quite the accusations. So part of what we'll see this morning is Paul's defense against these accusations, as well as what I'm calling four marks of a pastor's heart that I believe Paul reveals to us in the text this morning. So if you're at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, we will read that now. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were all ready. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses in God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather this morning. And to hear your word proclaimed, just to speak it, Father, is a blessing. And Father, I just ask that you would move in this place this morning, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would open this text up to us. Father, I bring the wood, Father, and I just pray that you would light this altar on fire. In Jesus' name, amen. So I ran across this great little story. It's called What a Job. It reads... The pastor teaches, though he must solicit his own classes. He heals, though without pills or knife. He's sometimes a lawyer, often a social worker, sometimes an editor, 
a bit of a philosopher and entertainer, a salesman, a decorative piece for public functions, and he's supposed to be a scholar. He visits the sick, marries people, buries the dead, labors to console those who sorrow and to admonish those who sin, and tries to stay sweet when chided for not doing his duty. He plans programs, appoints committees when he can get them, spends considerable time in keeping people out of each other's hair. Between times, he prepares a sermon and preaches it on Sunday to those who don't happen to have any other engagement. Then on Monday, some jovial chap roars, what a job, one day a week. (laughs) All of that is reduced down to one day a week, and I think that's very fitting for our story today and the work that goes into being a pastor and what what goes with that. And we're going to zoom in on that this morning, and Paul is going to give us some beautiful pictures. All right. As Paul recalls his visit to Thessalonica, he uses four metaphors to represent his love and care for the church. We'll explore those this morning, but before I give you the four metaphors Paul used to represent his pastoral love and care for the church, let me first tell you four ways to get rid of your pastor. Number one, look the pastor straight in the eye while he's preaching and say amen once in a while, and he'll preach himself to death. Number two, pat him on the back and brag on his good points, and he'll probably work himself to death. Number three, rededicate your life to Christ and ask the preacher for some job to do, preferably some lost person you could win to Christ, and he'll die of heart failure. (laughs) And number four, get the church to unite in prayer for the preacher, and he'll soon become so effective that some larger church will take him off your hands. I just thought that was too good to pass up. So the first metaphor that Paul uses, um, which I'm referring to as my first mark of a pastor's heart, is that of a steward, particularly a steward of the gospel, which we'll see in verses 3 through 4. But before we dig into those verses, let us first look at the first two verses of this passage. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that are coming to you was not in vain. So Paul is saying here that his visit was not empty of purpose, neither was it ineffective. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So what's the shameful treatment that Paul experienced? So in Acts chapter 16, verses 19 through 39, If you remember, this is the story where Paul exercises the slave girl who has the spirit of divination or fortune telling. And the owners of the slave girl, realizing that they could no longer make money from her divination, decided to grab Paul and Silas and drag them to the marketplace to stand before the rulers of the city of Philippi. They were accused of practicing customs that were not lawful for Romans to accept or practice according to the scriptures. Paul and Silas are attacked by the people, stripped naked by the city officials, and then beaten with rods and thrown into prison. But we all know that that prison sentence didn't stick because Paul and Silas prayed inside of that prison. And they sang inside of that prison. And God opened the doors of that prison. And I love how God works. And as a result of that happening, the jailer and his whole family ended up becoming saved. 
Paul then appeals to his Roman citizenship in order to be released from what was going on. Because as a Roman citizen, they had no right to treat him the way that they did. And so he appeals to that, and then he forces them to apologize before they kicked him out of the city. Now, that's something. I need that type of power. Now, anyway, so this is another reason Paul says in verse 1 that his coming to them was not in vain. So look with me at verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Apparently, Paul was being accused of having bad motives. Some were saying that he was deceiving others seeking the praise of people and running after wealth. So Paul uses verses 3 through 6 to defend his actual motives. These accusations are ridiculous anyway when you think about it. Who goes around seeking money, fame, glory, all of these things, but you preach a message that gets people to throw rocks at you and lock you up? That sounds ridiculous. It seems like he's not a man that's out there trying to get people to follow something that's false. There's another thing that we see here in this verse is that this is something that we see commonly today is that we can take evangelism and we can use it to try to drum up a bunch of converts that really have not counted the cost. And that happens all the time. You sell a person this dream about Christianity being this thing where you come to Jesus and everything gets better and everything's perfect and nothing goes wrong in your life and you're going to have blessings and money's going to just overflow and all of these great things. And then they come to Christ and then they start getting hit in the head and they're like rocks are getting thrown and people are not liking them anymore. And they're like, they're disillusioned, right? That's not what the disciples did. That's not what the missionaries did. They told them up front what the cost of following Jesus was. Verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. We can clearly see in this verse, Paul's focus is on God as the one he sought to please and to whom he had to answer to. But what, what does Paul mean by we have been approved by God? The word approved here in the Greek is Dokimazo, dokimazo, which basically means to test and find genuine. This was a term used to describe coins and people. Another way to say this is to say that someone is fit for a public office. So God has said that Paul is truly qualified to do what Paul is doing. As I thought about what it practically looks like to be a faithful steward of the gospel, my mind couldn't help but go to a person and not necessarily a story. And as I thought about that, the person that came to my mind instantly was our former pastor, Jim Downs. As I thought about somebody who was a faithful steward of the gospel, and I watched him for nine or ten years get up here Sunday in, Sunday night, Sunday evening, whatever it took, and faithfully preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is a faithful steward in this building, outside this building, on the basketball court, or at your job. He's the same man. And that's a beautiful picture of what being a faithful steward of the gospel looks like. And I thank you, Pastor Jim. Thank you. We should give people their flowers while they can still smell them, as they say, right? Though we as members of the church are not all called to be pastors, and we're certainly not called to be Pastor Jim, um, we can be faithful stewards 
of the gospel in our own spheres of influence. So whoever you have access to, you can be that. You can be Jesus with skin on, as I've heard before. You can, you can be the gospel message in their lives. You don't have to be a pastor to do that. That's for all of us. The second metaphor Paul uses to describe his pastoral care is that of a mother in verses 5 through 8. Verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. If the missionaries would have come with flattery, it may have given the people legitimate reason to doubt their message. Paul crushes the accusations of greed easily. It was well known that Paul worked in his job as a tent maker while he lived among them. If this weren't enough, Paul appeals to God himself as his witness to the fact that his motives were pure. Now, I don't know about you, but as a God-fearing man, I don't call God to be a witness to something that's not true. And there's nothing about Paul's life that would tell me that he would do so. When it talks about flattery, it says, you know we never used flattery. The word flattery used here occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. I found that shocking. That word occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. It is a word, according to one commentator, which expresses the torturous methods by which one man seeks to gain influence over another, generally for selfish ends. When the text says, nor with pretext for greed, God is witness. Paul is saying that God is our witness, that we did not put on a mask to cover up our greed. We didn't pretend to serve you while in reality wishing to be served ourselves. The same commentator says, sums it up perfectly. He says, all three evils, the flattery, the mask, and the hunger for compliments are illicit ways of using others to build up ourselves. Mm, isn't that so easy to do? What I'm doing right now makes that easy to do, right? I could elicit comment. Oh, tell me how good I was, oh, right? It's dangerous. It's a dangerous place. First Thessalonians 2.6, nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles. Paul is simply saying that his ministry in Thessalonica was not a quest for personal fame or glory. When Paul says, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, we can get a better understanding of that if we take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 3 through 14. And I'm going to read that. If you want to turn there, feel free or just listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 3. So this is Paul. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. 
If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So Paul had every right to have the Thessalonian church support him. But as Paul is acting as a father, he decides, I'm going to lay down all of my rights. I'm going to lay down what is rightfully mine. And I'm going to make sure that I'm not a hindrance or burden to you guys hearing the gospel. I don't want anything to get in the way of you hearing this message of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. There's some debate among scholars about what Paul was getting at using this feminine metaphor of a mother. This can be taken in the positive, for example. The way a mother comes down to the level of her children using their language and playing their games. Basically becoming childlike with her children. In the negative sense, Paul could be calling on this imagery to describe the immaturity of his converts. So either way you want to look at that, you're probably not wrong. Uh, Verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you have become very dear to us. Paul is expanding on the previous thought saying when we came to you, we could have pushed our rights and privileges, but instead of doing that, we treated you like a nursing mother, meaning we came without craftiness or cunning, but with loving, selfless devotion. Have you ever heard the term mama bear? Mm -hmm. What that means in reference to my wife is she don't play about her babies. Let me say that again. She don't play about her babies. So if you get to messing with the Hamer clan, Mama Bear will come out. I remember this particular time when Ralea, my oldest, was in grade school. And she was young. She's just a sweet, she's a sweet soul, sweet spirit. And so she was getting bullied. Like she was going to school and like coming home every day. And she's like, man, they're picking on me. They're messing with me. And we, I remember like the teachers weren't doing anything. It seems like nothing was happening. And I can distinctly remember my wife being more than willing to go and discipline the children as well as the parents if they wanted smoke too. So, <laughs> so her acting in her motherly instinct, right? She wanted to protect. But at the same time, there was another side to my wife that I got to see was the gentleness in which she dealt with Ralea, who was scarred from what had happened. She encouraged her. She exhorted her. She built back up what the bullies tried to tear down. You know how we can do this? The same way Pastor Chad does and the same way Paul did. By preaching the gospel to one another, sharing each other's burdens, and most importantly, striving to live lives worthy of our calling in Christ. Our third metaphor, or the third metaphor that Paul uses, is that of a father in verses 9 through 12. Verse 9, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. 
in order to not be a burden on anyone in the church and to stifle any accusations that he was in it for the money, Paul worked in his trade as a tent maker while he lived among the Thessalonians, while at the same time performing his duties as a pastor. In this way, Paul acted as a father towards them. Just as any good father does, Paul sacrificed and laid down his rights so that there would be nothing hindering them from hearing the truth of the gospel. As I thought about that, I thought about my own week. Now, I'm no pastor, but by the grace of God, I get to act in some capacity of that time to time, right? And so I'm like, I'm reading this and I'm thinking about my own life. And I'm like, man, this has been a hard week at work. I'm like, I got overtime. I got all this covenant. I'm trying to squeeze in the sermon late at night. And I'm like, this is what pastors all over the world go through every week. There are so many that are bivocational and not by choice, but by force. And I just, oh, the heart of a pastor, you guys have no idea what it takes. So we should definitely honor our pastors. As I thought about that and the work that goes into that, we need to honor our leaders for sure. Um, Verse 10, you are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul seems to be speaking here to the educational role of a father in these two verses. He encouraged them, he comforted them, and he set an example for them, worthy to be followed. And in the same breath, he calls them to live in a way that now honors God who, was, who has brought the believer into his own kingdom. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about my son. I was thinking about Jalen. And just this past Thursday, he's been playing a little basketball. We got him in this little program, and he's been learning some fundamentals and things like that. And so this past Thursday, I went to his last little scrimmage, and I'm looking, and I'm like, oh, man, he's got a lot of hustle. I'm looking, I'm like, I'm so proud of him. Like, he's just moving, he's moving. He never and he's a bigger guy like me, but he's got a motor on him. And so he never stops moving. But he was moving without a purpose a lot of the times. And so when there was a break, I called him over to the sideline and I said, son, listen, when you cut, you're doing a great job. First, I encouraged him. You're doing a great job at hustling and getting away from your man and cutting and all of that. I say, but where are you going? You're cutting and you're not even looking up for the ball, son. And so I I gave him that, and then I reached back to me and him playing in the driveway a couple weeks ago. And I said, son, remember, you're a big guy like me. What did I teach you? That when you want to get a shot, you need to put your body on somebody. And when you put this body on somebody, they're going to (laughs) move. And so he had something to reach back to because I set an example for him as his father. How can we do this? Simply by taking the time to teach someone else what Christ has taught you. This could be a life lesson where your past mistakes led you to some brokenness and you see an opportunity to share with someone why they shouldn't make the same choices, right? Or maybe it's as simple as teaching a young person in the church how to tie a tie. We watched this video Saturday um, about this man who lives in like a community where it's a lot of gangs, a lot of drugs, and all these things. And he takes young boys that are like the grade school age, 
that are in these areas of gang infestation and poverty, and he teaches them how to be men. He calls it the gentleman's club. And so he takes these young men, he teaches them how to tie a tie, he teaches them how to say yes sir, no sir, how to do these simple things. And in the video they talked about how just from these simple things of this man making a deposit into the lives of these young men, it turned their entire schooling and everything around. They had hope. They could see a future. And man, we need to step up because these young people need us. The same way that those young men needed that man, they need us to set an example for them. They need us to show them how to do these things. They need us to show them how to walk this walk. And I'm speaking specifically to men. Men, step it up. We have to. We got generations of young people that are out here dying for nothing. Because men like us aren't standing up and telling them that there's something better. This is what God calls us to. As Christians especially. There's people doing this that don't even know Jesus. How much more should we, as the people of God, be stepping out and making these deposits into the lives of men and women? And the last metaphor or mark of a pastor's heart we'll look at is that of the pastor as a herald or a messenger of the gospel, which we'll see in verses 13 through 16. Verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The Thessalonians understood the truth, that the message that Paul declared was from God himself and not from man. The end of verse 13 says, is at work in you believers. That's a significant phrase. When that's unpacked, Paul is communicating that the message that he preached authenticated itself because those who believed in it had transformed lives. As we would say today, the proof is in the pudding. Somebody says it better than me. Paul Washer said, if I was late for a meeting and I came in the building and I said to you that on my way here, I got hit by an 18-wheeler, what would you say to me when I walked in? What would you say to me? You say either he's crazy, right, or he's lying. Same thing with Jesus. You can't say you had an encounter with Jesus and you stay the same. Either you're crazy or you're lying, right? Because the power of the Holy Spirit working in us changes us. It may not all be at once. It may not wake up and have everything together. But over time, the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit is changing us little by little. 14, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ, Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. The power of the gospel in the lives of the Thessalonians, Thessalonian Christians, was seen in the fact that, as the verse says, they became imitators of the churches of God in Christ that are in Judea. The Judean churches are probably mentioned here because they were a part of the first to be planted. But look at this. This is, this is real crazy. Look at God here. Paul says the Thessalonian Christians are imitators of a church that they would have probably never even known existed. Why? 
It's a beautiful picture of how all true churches that belong to God and live in Christ have similar characteristics. Regardless of location, cultural differences, or anything else, a church living for Jesus is an effective church. And it's a church that's a light. And it stands out. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. What suffering is Paul referring to? He tells us in verses 15 and 16. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Paul here says that the Jews had not only killed the Messiah, persecuted the prophets and the apostles, but they took it even further and were actively seeking to stop people from getting saved by silencing the spread of the gospel. So the end of this verse might be a little bit complicated to hear that, but wrath has come upon them at last. So how should we understand that? Much like Jesus was saying in saying the kingdom of God has come upon you in Matthew 12, 28, is the same way we should understand the latter part of verse 16. But wrath has come upon them at last. When Jesus said his verse in Matthew 12, 28, he used the same verb in the same tense, which communicates that what he is saying has already arrived, but the people may or may not have received it, right? You may have a package shipped by Amazon that's at FedEx right now, but until you go there, and give them your license, you haven't received it, right? So simply put, Paul is saying, the wrath of God is hanging over the Jews' heads, but has not yet fallen on them. There's a pastor by the name of J.H. Crowell. And here's a short story that I think will bless you. Pastor J.H. Crowell, when about 16, shipped on a sailing vessel where he was the only Christian in a crew of 12. Before leaving his mother, he promised to meet her three times a day at the throne of grace. So regularly he went below and prayed aloud. He thought he must. They threw wood at him and poured buckets of water over him, but could not put out the fire in his soul. Then they tied him to the mast and laid 39 strips on his back. Still he prayed. They tied a rope around his body and threw him overboard. He swam as best he could. And when he took hold of the side of the ship, they pushed him off with a pole. At last, his strength gave way. And supposing they meant to kill him, he prayed that God would forgive them and called out, send my mother my body. Tell my mother that I died for Jesus. He was then pulled on deck, unconscious. But after some time, conviction became to seize, came to seize the sailors. Before night, two of them were gloriously converted. Inside of a week, everyone on board, including the captain, was blessedly saved. Oh, Jesus. I'm sorry. Every time I read, I hear about the power of the gospel in the lives of people, I can't help but have my heart inflamed. And as I think about as a church, what is our opportunity to live this way? Well, we have it coming up, right? 
Resurrection Sunday, we're going to get an opportunity to learn how to share our faith with the three circles of evangelism. We're going to have an opportunity to learn the very simple message that we live in a broken world. And because of that brokenness, we try everything that we can to fill those holes that are there. As a result of that brokenness, we try drugs, we try alcohol, we try all kinds of things that are outside of God in order to heal this thing. Because sin has created separation. But God, he has a perfect plan, right? Everything was originally created good and perfect. And because of sin, that relationship with Jesus Christ was broken. But with God, it's broken. But Jesus Christ provides a way of escape and a way back to the Father, which is our third circle. And I think that's just such an easy, simple way to express to people the gospel of our God, Jesus Christ. So I'm hoping and I'm praying with all of my heart that as a church, we will commit to this and that we will do our best. Now, whether you do this program or not, most importantly, I want you to share your faith. I want you to talk to people about who this Jesus is. Have you seen his power in your own life? Have you seen his power in the lives of others? I can't help but speak his name. He's so good. At this time, I'm going to ask Pastor Chad to come forward and pray for us, um, and then we will move forward with our service. Thank you. Thank you for a great message on shepherding and, and pastor, the pastor's heart. I couldn't help but think of the good shepherd, and that is Jesus, as we read in John chapter 10, verse 11, where he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And while a man, including myself, will, will always fall short of what uh, Roman just preached as, as a pastor, Jesus has never fallen short. He is the good pastor. He is the good shepherd. And we remember him laying his life down for us, for those who have trusted Christ. So we have now an opportunity to prepare our hearts for that. If you have never trusted Christ, I'd invite you to do that right now. You could say something like, God, I realize I have sin in my heart. I've sinned against you. We've sung about you being holy today, and I'm not. I am sinful, and my sin has a consequence. It results in death and eternal death. And if I'm left in my sin, I would go to hell forever. But Jesus has come. And he is the one who has taken my wandering heart that has strayed away from his perfect plan for me. And instead of me dying there on the cross, Jesus has come in my place. And I, I receive that gift. I believe that is what will save me. And I would turn from my sin and I, I repent of my, my sinful ways. And I want to be born again. I want to be a new person that I would be affected eternally. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have trusted Christ for the first time, we would love to, to know that. We'd love to talk with you and encourage you of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how to live that out.